U.S. federal law says your company can't retaliate against you for making a good faith report of sexual harassment. And that's true even if their ultimate assessment of the situation ends up being different than yours. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And that was our regular guest, Allison Green, who runs Ask a Manager. And it's no secret why we're talking about this stuff. Things women once whispered to each other are now in the public eye. In Hollywood, sure, but also across offices and industries. So if you do make a report about harassment, what are your rights? We'll get into that with Allison and also discuss the various boundaries in work relationships a little later in the show. But we're going to start with something you may have noticed all around you. Pink, to symbolize Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is October, and that means pink merchandise. Yes, ribbons, but also mugs, bracelets, tote bags, even kick-the-cancer drink cozies. If you want a first-hand look, you can probably get one at the mall. Marketing manager Sarah Newman gave us a tour of the Paseo Colorado Mall in Pasadena, California. We've got some posters throughout the shopping center to uh, bring awareness to the campaign. Uh, We also promote this on social media and our website. I'm showing you our Paseo Goes Pink campaign for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. The campaign is uh, all month long, so from October 1st to October 31st, we have installed uh, pink LED lights, and essentially what we are asking guests to do and shoppers to do is to stand underneath the pink lights, uh, which are beautiful at night, and more so than trying to present a positive image, I think um, we are only as successful as our community is. The more that the community is doing, the more we want to be involved. And hopefully the more we're doing, the community will be involved. We don't necessarily feel obligated, but I think that um, when people are already, we already sort of have a built-in audience, I think it's it's a way for us to communicate to them. Even just something as small as turning on some pink lights at night really just kind of lets people know that, hey, we're thinking about you. And if you know or have any loved ones that, you know, have suffered or had breast cancer or um, if this has touched them in any way, um, I think it's, uh, you know, I think they appreciate that. This practice is generally called cause marketing. It's different from straight-up philanthropy because the cause itself is intertwined with ads and product sales. Critics say cause marketing has more emphasis on market than cause, like California Assemblymember Laura Friedman. We allow companies to get away with turning products pink and saying that it supports breast cancer research without any accountability as to whether they actually are giving money to breast cancer organizations and if so, how much they're giving. Uh, They do it to sell products. They're not doing it to help the cause of breast cancer in most cases. My feeling is if they were really serious, they would just donate funding to breast cancer instead of um, uh, donating pennies on the dollar um, out of the profits that they're making off of women's suffering. She's a breast cancer survivor and awareness advocate. And it can be tricky to figure out exactly how much money cause marketing raises for charities. ESP, a consulting firm, says companies spent about $2 billion on sponsorships last year. But John Tribus, a professor who studies this stuff at Georgetown, told us over email that number only applies to things like putting their logos on Special Olympics banners. It doesn't account for merchandise like those drink cozies or pink airline uniforms. So the $2 billion number is just a piece of the larger market. One thing is clear. Promoting a cause helps companies boost their bottom lines. 
Cause marketing is just one way of letting your audience know that you're caring for the causes that they care about. And that gives you a halo, a reputation that hopefully will uh, turn over into some opportunities for customers to purchase more things from you. Joe Waters is a cause marketing consultant. I asked him what the return on investment is for a company that does this. It certainly varies uh, by company, but companies like Tom's and Patagonia have seen tremendous value from these campaigns. You may remember a few years ago, Lizzie, um, Patagonia had a great campaign called Don't Buy This Jacket. And it was all about having Mm. people come in and having their clothing and their jackets uh, repaired by Patagonia. And instead, instead, you know, people end up buying more jackets. The other side of this is how much money does the sort of proven or chosen charity get at the end of this? You know, one of the famous sets of numbers that ESPN threw out is that, you know, for every $100 of pink merchandise sold by the NFL in October, only $11.25 goes to the American Cancer Society. Now, that's ESPN's reporting, but, you know, it seems to show a pretty big gulf between uh, what gets sold and then what actually ends up benefiting the charity from a from a financial standpoint. Yeah, there are some great examples out there of companies who have uh, who have really helped uh, causes uh, with their missions. The NFL is not a great example of someone who is giving back a lot with their campaigns. Is there, um, I guess, a delicate nature about picking your cause? I mean, you know, we are in the month of October. We think about breast cancer and so much breast cancer awareness that is done on on the corporate side. But there are other things that don't get that kind of vocal support, that don't get the cause marketing or the monetary support. You know, are there things that get left behind? Yeah. And well, you know, that's part of the the challenge, too, with a lot of the causes that we see is that those causes that really get the most attention are the trending causes. But, Hmm. you know, one of the positive signs, I think, in the marketplace, Lizzie, is that companies are looking at how they can support local organizations, just as companies are driving towards personalization in their communications with consumers. They're really trying to personalize their giving. Jersey Mike's, which is a submarine shop chain of about 1,500 stores, they let their franchise owners pick the organization. Then the last day of March, Lizzie, they they donate every dime they make that day to good causes. And it's the franchise owners who get to pick the local causes that that goes back to. You know, this whole conversation, there's been something that I've been curious about. So if you're, let's take a great big company, if you're Walmart, right, you make a lot of money why are you doing cause marketing instead of just turning around and giving, you know, $125 million to some foundation? When we talk about the cor- corporate checkbook, we're talking about really the the thing that's the least lucrative of the company to give to good causes. The best thing a company can do is activate its stakeholders to support a cause. I'll give you an example. Kmart over the past 10 years has raised over $100 million for St. Jude. But during that time, Kmart has literally been closing hundreds of stores. Yeah. They never would have been able to make a donation like that. When you look at what the next few years could bring, what what trends are you watching? First of all, I think we're going to see a more medium and small size businesses participating in cause. I'm also really excited about how technology is going to impact cause. We could go into a store at one point and our phone will tell us four items in that stores that are benefiting causes that we care about so we can buy those things. 
That was Joe Waters. He's a cause marketing consultant, and he runs the website SelfishGiving.com. To be honest, the economic world can sometimes feel like it speaks its own language. People in finance use words or phrases they just assume everybody gets. Like when they talk about earnings. We're in the middle of earnings season. Boeing, Goldman Sachs, and Verizon all released their earnings reports this week. So that's where we're going to start this series of economic explainers, with five things you need to know about earnings reports. Nick Bloom is a professor of economics at Stanford, and he's going to help us out starting with the relationship between earnings and the economy. So the first thing is Wall Street does not equal Main Street, which is to say that the companies that we follow on earnings reports are not the same as the U.S. economy. So, for example, some of the most famous firms like Apple, Google and General Electric actually make most of their sales abroad. And there's about 10 million jobs in the U.S. that are actually from foreign companies. So as much as the stock market doing fantastically well is great news, it doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, that the U.S. economy is roaring away. Number two, earnings and tax revenue. The second point is these huge profits and earnings that firms are making doesn't necessarily translate into great taxes for us either. So another stylized fact is some of the biggest and most profitable firms around are stashing huge amounts of cash overseas. So what that means is while they're making enormous profits, we're not actually seeing a lot of it pay through in terms of higher taxes, which would help us for government spending on things like schools and hospitals. Okay, but are the numbers companies tell us totally accurate? The third point is don't believe the hype. You know, the saying is that earnings reports are more massaged than an NFL lineman after the Super Bowl. Every single number has been played around with, moved up, moved down, examined and re-examined. The reason is, of course, that firms are acutely aware that Wall Street and hedge funds pay very close attention to their earnings numbers. So given that, they themselves want to make sure they put them in the very best light they can. And so they spend, you know, weeks, if not months, massaging these numbers. Or can earnings reports tell you how to invest? Well, point number four is a bit of investment advice, which is one of the uh, you know basics of investment is you shouldn't really buy individual shares. So if you're investing and looking to uh, you know create a nest egg or build for your pension, I would stay away from individual shares and go for cheap uh, and much safer long-run index trackers. You know, you, in so many ways, you shouldn't be paying any attention to the earnings reports because I'm hoping that people aren't investing in those very companies on their own. And on that note, for our fifth thing, the one piece of advice Nick Bloom has if you're looking at earnings reports. Normally, the figures are earnings per share, but earnings per share differ massively across companies because it depends on how many shares they put out. So, for example, if your company is making $100 million and you have 100 shares, that's a million dollars of earnings per share. Whereas if your company has a million shares, that's $100 of earnings per share. And that's obviously a huge difference. So the first thing is you want to look at earnings per share. But the second is you want to know how many shares and how much earnings, so what the rough level should be. And frankly, the only way to do that is look at what they were last year. There you have it. Five things you need to know about earnings reports. 
Our thanks to Nick Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University. We got something you need explained? Send us an email with five things you'd like to know about. We're at weekend at marketplace.org. We love numbers, like those five things you need to know about earnings season. And every week, we like to take a look at the news by the numbers. Here to help us, we have producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Hit it, Tony. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 23. That's percentage the Dow Jones fell on October 19, 1987. The day is known as Black Monday because it's the most that the stock market has fallen in a single day. No one quite knows why the crash happened, but it was made a lot worse by automated risk management software that kept telling investors to sell even when there was no one left to buy. Moral of the story? Don't use technology that you don't understand. One. That's how many dollars inmates make an hour fighting fires in California. According to the California Department of Corrections, it's the highest paying job for inmates in the state. Inmate firefighters make up between 35 and 40 percent of the force in Northern California, where wildfires have displaced over 90,000 people. The California Insurance Commissioner estimates that losses have exceeded a billion dollars, and he expects them to rise. 47. That's a percentage of teens using Snapchat, according to a new survey from Piper Jeff Ray. Snapchat tops the list of their preferred social media platforms with Instagram and Facebook trailing behind. Bad news for Twitter, though. The study found only 7% of teens like to use that site. Sarah, you're the closest thing to a teen we have here uh, at Marketplace. Can I get a fact check on this one? Yeah, man. I love Snapchat. Hot dog filter all day. again for Allison Green from Ask a Manager to answer your questions about life at work. In this edition, we're tackling relationships and boundaries at the office. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, how to deal with inappropriate attention or harassment. Allison, it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Since we're starting with relationships and romance, um, what tend to be the rules when it comes to romantic relationships at work? Are there rules? there are. Um, I think the biggest is that if you are interested in asking someone out, you get one shot at it and only one. Um, If you ask out a coworker and you're turned down, you've got to leave it there. This is not the time for that style of pursuit that you see in romantic comedies. Um, Your coworkers need to be able to work in peace without worrying about having to fend off advances. And, And you have to be able to deal with rejection gracefully so you can't get weird or avoid the person or do anything that's going to make their working environment less comfortable. Another one, I think, is that you can't date someone who's in your chain of command. Most companies these days have policies prohibiting Mm. that anyway, but even if yours doesn't, that is not something you want to do. It can create all kinds of problems around bias and favoritism and abuse of power or even just the appearance of those things. So stay away from that. Um, And then I think the other big one is, let's say you do ask out someone who isn't inappropriate to date and they say yes and you start dating and you become a couple. 
you want to keep the romance out of the office because you don't want to make your coworkers uncomfortable. So no hugging, no holding hands, no couple-y behavior like always sitting together at meetings. You want to preserve some professional boundaries. And if any problems come up in your relationship, they have to stay out of the office. So if there's tension between you or you have a fight, it can't come to work with you. And along the same lines, if you break up, you've got to keep being civil to each other. That's it's a lot of hurdles. Um, so I actually want to play tape from someone who overcame uh, those hurdles or those potential hurdles because we do spend a lot of time at work. People meet partners there. Love, you know, happens where it happens. Uh, here is listener Colleen Roth. So I met Dave when I was hired as a marketing intern at a regional accounting firm here in Pittsburgh. We had worked together, um, all told, about five years we never had any problems. Nobody ever gave us any hard time about dating. The atmosphere there really was kind of friendly toward inter-office relationships. There were a lot of other couples there. So there was never any time where we felt like we were going to get in trouble or um, that there was really any official policy. Okay, so their story is, you know, the happy ever after, the best scenario. And it sounds like Colleen and Dave's office was open to this and okay with this. Um, what if your office isn't, or as might be the case, is unclear? Yeah, I think it's increasingly uncommon to see offices these days that prohibit dating among peers across the board. Um, but sometimes it's not clear. I mean, what's more common, I think, is is an absence of any policy at all. So people just kind of don't know. Um, they start dating. They think maybe it's not going to go anywhere. So they don't think it really matters. And then it gets more serious and they're stuck wondering, is it something they have to disclose? Um, if you are not in each other's line of command, in most office cultures. It's not something you're expected to have to disclose, but that can get murky. Um, I mean, even if you're not directly in each other's line of command, maybe you have some influence over what project assignments the other person gets or what kind of evaluation they get. So if there's anything like that, where you could be perceived as having some power or some authority over the other person, that's when I think you do need to disclose it to your manager or to HR. Moving on from romantic relationships to work friendships, uh, Joy Carmichael asked this question. What do you do if you have an issue at work with your supervisor and they are close friends with the HR director? This is actually one of the big reasons why good HR people don't have close friendships at work, at least outside mm. of the HR department, which sucks for them. But it can make it really hard for people yeah. to trust that they'll be unbiased. And a big part of that job is that people need to trust that you'll be unbiased. I would actually argue it's unprofessional for an HR person to be best friends with someone at work, at least if they're in a role where they might need to help resolve issues with that people for exactly the reason that caller is bringing up. Um, but not everyone is perfectly professional. So so if you do find yourself in that situation, I think first you want to see if there's someone else in HR who you can talk to. And it's okay to be transparent about why. You know, you can say, I feel a little awkward talking to Jane about this because I know she's close with Bob. Um, but if that's not a possibility, you can also, in a lot of cases, skip HR and just talk to your own manager or the other other person's manager, which is often the best route to take for issues anyway. All right. Obviously, we cannot have you on this week without talking about harassment. Um, and, and to be clear to our listeners, there is a bright line between relationships and harassment. Harassment is really about power. But we have seen so much on social media that Me Too hashtag women talking about assault and harassment, all of these things following uh, the Harvey Weinstein uh, revelations 
Uh, as an employee, what is kind of the best way to deal with harassment? This is a huge question, but how do you go about thinking about maybe bringing a complaint? Yeah, I think a big thing is to trust your gut. Often women really doubt and men really doubt themselves in these cases. They worry that they misinterpret it or they'll be told they're blowing something out of proportion. And harassers often leave just enough plausible deniability that they can claim they didn't mean a remark the way it sounded. And all of that can make people really doubt whether something reportable really took place. I would say trust your gut Um, and and speak up. If your company has a policy for reporting harassment and you feel comfortable using it, report it. And if you're not sure you do feel comfortable reporting it, but there is maybe a senior woman who you'd be willing to approach, talk to her and talk to people at your own level too. I mean, in a lot of these cases, no one says anything. And so they don't realize that a bunch of their coworkers are all experiencing the same thing. And there can be real power. which is what number. we've seen this week. Yes, absolutely. Um, so speak up. Do not stay quiet about it. And also know your legal rights. In the U.S., federal law says your company can't retaliate against you for making a good faith report of sexual harassment. And that's true even if their ultimate assessment of the situation ends up being different than yours. They still can't retaliate against you for it. And they're required to take complaints seriously. They're required to investigate them. If your company is not following those laws, you can consider talking to the uh, EEOC, which deals with, with workplace harassment law. You could talk to a lawyer. who can Equal have, Employment Opportunity Commission. Thank you. Um, you can also talk to a lawyer. Sometimes people think talking to a lawyer sounds like a really big step that they don't want to take. But just talking to a lawyer doesn't commit you to anything. It just means you're going to be educated on your rights and your range of options. What are your obligations as an employer, both proactively and then maybe to create an environment where folks aren't sitting there saying, ooh, maybe I did do something wrong and aren't, you know, kind of second guessing themselves about reporting. Yeah. So you do have to take seriously any complaint that's that's made to you. If you're a manager, you have a higher level of obligation to report than if you're a non-manager. So if you're a manager and you witness something that looks questionable between some employees or someone says to you, you know, hey, so-and-so is, is being really creepy with the women on staff you don't have the option of just sitting on that information. You have to use your company's reporting procedure and the company has to investigate it. Um, Beyond just what's required, you know, a lot of companies have those policies in their handbook, but they're not getting used because people don't feel safe reporting. They don't feel like the they'll be treated fairly. They're worried they'll be penalized even subtly. So I think if you're a company that really wants to handle this well, you need to really make sure People feel safe reporting. So that means you have multiple people who people can report to. There's not just one person. Um, If you have just one person who takes those reports and they're the problem or they're close to the person who's the problem, people aren't going to report. So you need multiple avenues for it. You need to ensure that when people do report that you handle it discreetly, that you handle it um, sensitively, that you don't make people feel like they're the problem or that they're going to be investigated for reporting. If people see that you do all of that and that you take complaints seriously, you're much more likely to have an environment where people will speak up. We got a really interesting email this week from a listener, David Berman, who is the CEO of a small company who has been talking with his staff a lot uh, since the Harvey Weinstein stories broke. And he asked us some questions. One of them is, how can one know if an advance is unwelcome? What do you think, Allison? Oh, such a complicated question. I think at work, you need to err on the side of caution. You know, if you're not getting clear signals from your coworker that an advance would be welcome, you just have to err on the side of caution. And 
if you do ask someone out, if you get anything other than a very clear, very enthusiastic yes, assume it's a no and, and back off and don't keep asking because the person shouldn't have to continually fend off advances at work. Um, and then again, it, it, chain of command, you know, never ever, no matter how welcome you think it might be, never ask out anyone in your chain of command in either direction because of the potential for abuse of power. David also asked us sort of a chain of command related question asking, can you imagine telling an employee who is up for a promotion that they would have to end a friendship or relationship that they'd been enjoying for years because they are now going to be in a leadership position? Um, this, this one's hard. Like, how would you deal with that? That is actually exactly what you do have to do in management positions. And it is, it is tough, but you can't put someone in a position where they're managing someone who they're romantically involved with, or often even if just a close, close friendship, it's bad for both of them and it's bad for the company. Best case scenario, it's probably going to lead to the appearance of favoritism. Worst case scenario, actual favoritism, like the boss not being impartial when it comes to raises or promotions or assignments, people being afraid to approach the boss with problems about the person. And it can even lead to legal issues if the employee doesn't feel comfortable breaking things off because she fears it might affect her standing at work. So it is tough. I mean, there are compromises that come with, with moving into leadership positions, and, and one of them is about the type of relationships that you can have with people. Allison Green writes Ask a Manager. She joins us every month to answer your workplace questions. You can find more of her advice on our website, marketplace.org. Just look for Ask a Manager. Allison, thank you so much. Thank you. El Salvador is often described as one of the most dangerous places in the world. Violent gangs, police crackdowns, and there's another issue, high rates of violence against women. Last year, a special court was set up in El Salvador to better protect women's rights. But an all-female theater company is also doing its part to help victims of abuse rebuild their personal and financial lives. Caterina Fernandez-Martins has this story. It's Thursday evening at a theater in San Salvador. Before the show starts, the audience is told to keep an open mind and an open heart. I invite you to get to know the reality of these women's lives. Follow them inside their houses, go back to your childhood and connect to the things that make us human. Egli Larinaga is the founder and director of La Cachada Teatro, a group of five single mothers from the poorest and most violent neighborhoods of San Salvador. Six years ago, Egli convinced these women to tell frank stories about their lives. They brought the show all over El Salvador ever since. Tonight, the crowd is mostly people from El Salvador's middle and upper middle classes. La Cachada, slang for a special opportunity, a bargain, brings this audience a dose of a reality removed from their everyday lives. The actresses talk about life in this country which has among the highest rates of violence against women. And the mood changes. Because I had to have you. Because I was raped. By the time one of the actresses tells the audience she couldn't have an abortion because of El Salvador's strict laws, I was forced to have you. No one's laughing. 
including audience member Carolina Matias. There's a lot of help that needs to be done for the woman to raise their standard of living for their kids, for themselves. One of the actresses of La Cachada is Wendy Hernandez. She lives in Mexicanos, San Salvador's most dangerous neighborhood. It's a very different area from the venue where she performed. Wendy's home is just big enough for a stove and a double bed, where she sleeps with her two children. Being a street vendor is a tenuous, lousy paying job. Wendy makes 10 to 15 dollars a day selling fruit and tortillas in the streets of San Salvador. But when she performs with La Cachada, she earns up to 50 dollars a night. I really like selling in the streets. I manage my own time, but it's hard because some days I don't make any money. When La Cachada started, all women were street vendors. Most now work as maids in the houses of people who watch their plays and offer them better jobs. These women say the theater is the cachada, the chance, of their lives, and they want to open the minds of the people watching their plays. Maybe they'll also start looking at the maids cleaning their houses differently and stop abusing them. Maybe they'll stop harassing street vendors with their cars. A study conducted by the University of Technology of El Salvador found that more than half of El Salvadoran women say they've suffered some form of abuse. Women suffer violence at the hands of parents, boyfriends, husbands, and even at the hands of nurses at public hospitals, like they show in the play. Laura Aguirre, a Salvadoran researcher on sexual violence, says the women of La Cachada are raising the bar. They force themselves to go back to their stories of violence, to understand them and explain them in a different way. Back at home with Wendy Hernandez, her children are playing in the street. Gabi Hernandez has seen her mother change since she started working with the theater. Before we didn't used to go out and we complained to her about that. Now we do go out a little bit. Financially, Wendy is a bit more stable than she was six years ago when she started with La Cachada. But most importantly, she says the theater changed her life with her children. She has honest conversations with the kids now, including conversations about money. Now I tell them, I don't have money. If I have money, I'll buy you something. If I don't, I can't. Now my youngest one asks, do you have money or not? Seeing the possibilities that opened up for her mother, Gabby is feeling inspired to follow her own dreams. I feel I can move forward and finish my education. I would like to be a doctor one day. That was Gabby Hernandez ending that report from Caterina Fernandez-Martins in El Salvador. Reporting for this story was supported by the International Women's Media Foundation as part of its Adelante Latin America reporting initiative. You can read more on our website, marketplace.org. Over the past few weeks, we've been digging into Social Security and the future of retirement benefits in this country. 
Well, that's not all the Social Security Administration provides, of course. It also handles disability payments for people in need. But there are massive backlogs and wait times when it comes to getting a hearing for disability benefits for people like Joyce Otang. She filed for disability benefits in 2014 because of severe osteoarthritis, bipolar disorder, PTSD, and depression. I thought they were going to look at it and give it to me right away, maybe in months or so, but I waited so long. Oteng was initially denied benefits, like about two-thirds of disability applicants, so she appealed. The first hearing into her case took place two years later. During that time, she couldn't work. Finances were tight. It, it was difficult. But after a year of hearings, Oteng was awarded monthly benefits of just over $1,000. It helps. It helps, but it's not enough. And that's about the average payment for disability recipients. But for some, benefits come too late. Last year, according to the Social Security Administration's own inspector general, more than 7,000 people died while waiting for their disability cases to be heard. Miriam Hurwitz is an attorney at New York Legal Assistance. She works with low-income New Yorkers seeking disability benefits, and she's had clients die waiting. I think the system is clogged. I think that there are many more applications now than there used to be, as well as more denials. Um, And so for each denial, then you need to have a hearing, assuming the person appeals. The Social Security Administration declined to be interviewed for this story. But we asked the administration's former commissioner, Michael Astrew, what he thought of the backlog. He was commissioner from 2007 until 2013. According to Astrew, the problem isn't due to the initial application process. He says about 6 percent of applicants should pretty clearly just be allowed to get benefits. Those cases are usually decided within about 10 days, 14 days, sometimes within 24 hours. The vast majority of applicants hear about their status in 100 days, give or take. So then where's the backlog happening? The problem is on the back end, where if you're not happy with the first two levels of decision, then you have your right to appeal. And that's where the backlogs are. That's where you're having 1,000-day waits. And the system has regressed more quickly than it was fixed. And that's really, it's a terribly sad situation. We talk about the backlog, but I also want to talk about the, the, the benefits in general. We've heard from a bunch of different listeners. Benefits vary a little bit, but they're about $1,000 a month when we're talking about SSDI. Um, is that enough? You know, that's a judgmental question. Right now, it's not a conversation we can really afford to have because the system as a whole is insolvent. Right now, if you're a young working adult, you're looking at a system that, uh, you know, 15, 20 years from now, unless there's some significant change, it's going to start paying you substantially less in terms of benefits than what people go right now. It would go down to somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of what people are going uh, – what are people are getting now. So the question right. really isn't – I think the question on the table for the Congress for the immediate future is not whether it should be more. It's can't you get your act together to pass legislation to make sure that the benefit levels at least stay about the same to where they are now? Well, this seems to be the sort of dual problem issue in talking about Social Security overall, not just on the disability front or on the old age front. You have recipients who say, this money is not helping me survive. On the other hand, if you look at the basic math of the agency, uh, we are creeping up pretty quickly on 
insolvency. And so how how do we tackle this massive thing? Yes, but let's let's talk about what insolvency means because Right, you know, it's not as scary are, as it sounds. I feel like right, that, people, that can really freak people out. It's an actuarial term of art. And, you know, in, in regular life, if you and I were to be insolvent, that's really bad. That means there's no money left. That's not what it means for Social Security. What it means is that the trust fund over a 75-year period is not um, able to pull out – to pay the full benefits that it is paying at the moment. And so right now, it, it varies a little bit with the economy from year to year. But right now, the trustees are saying – that in the twenty, some point in the twenty thirties, um, benefits, unless something changes, will be reduced to about seventy seven percent of where they are now, and that's bad. Now, yeah, but seventy seven percent is not nothing. That's it's still, not nothing, right? It's not nothing. If you get disabled, it still would make a huge difference. You would still qualify, depending on whether it was. Uh, SSDI or, or, or SS well for SSDI you'd still qualify for Medicare and and in many cases for disabled people the qualifying for Medicare is much more important than the cash benefit. Okay, so you and I can have this conversation about Congress needing to do things and fraud in the system. But if you are listening to this and you receive or are counting on receiving either old age benefits or disability insurance, it's got to sound kind of academic and frustrating. Like that doesn't really help you pay your bills or or get through the week. I mean, sure. how, how, should, how should a recipient receive all of these kind of academic conversations? Well, I think if you're a recipient um, right now, it's it's difficult. I mean, you know, the conversations are going to happen. I think the important thing is not to panic. The fact that Congress um, seems dedicated to an action, I suppose, is a consolation in some sense. The people that really need to be concerned are younger Americans. And right now, it, the system really is an intergenerational transfer from younger Americans to middle-aged and older Americans. And um, I think a lot of them are frustrated by that. They think that there'll be nothing there for them, and and I don't think that's right. But the question is, are we really uh, living up to the social compact of Social Security? And I can't say that we are. Let me ask you a thirty thousand foot question: What yeah. is the goal of Social Security, e- either the old age benefit or disability insurance? Is it to cushion expenses? You know, help out a bit. Or is it to live on? No, it's not to live on. It's never been set up as a system to live on. It's been to, su- surprise, to supply baseline support for people, originally just people who were old, um, and then later people who had a severe disability. Um, but particularly with regard to retirement, it has always been meant as a supplement to private savings and pensions. And so when we I mean, talk on the disability about the, side, though, you know, if it's if if you can't work, that's that's tough. Yeah, that's bad, um, and that's why Congress expanded the program um, to uh, the insurance program in the 1950s, and as a, uh, the welfare component in the 1970s. It's a recognition that in a compassionate society, um, you don't 
um, relegate um, people at the bottom end of the spectrum economically to a life of, of severe suffering. You try to ameliorate that as best you can. But make no mistake about it, if you've got no other income and you're disabled or uh, retired, um, that's a very diff- that's a very small amount of money to live on, particularly in certain parts of c- the country. I mean, if you're in an urban area, it's particularly di- most urban areas, particularly on the East Coast and the West Coast, very difficult to live on that. That was Michael Astrew, former commissioner of the Social Security Administration from 2007 to 2013. Maybe your weekend involves spending time and money at a place like this. Here's the story of every burger ever made at TGI Fridays. There's Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. We're America's favorite neighbor, Applebee's. But the numbers behind chains like Applebee's, Buffalo Wild Wings, TGI Fridays tell us you're going less than you used to. Casual dining chains are now the worst performing segment of the entire restaurant industry. And the number of people eating at them has fallen every single month for the past two years. That's according to data from Miller Pulse. So what's happening? Using Lancaster, Pennsylvania as a lens for this story, writer Elizabeth Dunn investigated the decline of the suburban sit-down chain and what it says about the middle class for the website Eater. So I grew up going to TGI Fridays in high school and... I remember at the time it being the kind of place that basically everybody I knew went to. And those places, TGI Fridays, Applebee's, what we call casual dining restaurants, have started to close. They've started to go bankrupt. Traffic has been down across the country. And I just wanted to figure out why. There is a moment in your story in which you say, well, it could be millennials want things catered to them and artisanal this and that. And yet the data may be told you a different story. The decline of these restaurants seemed to coincide with polarizing incomes in the United States. So the higher wage earners in America earning more and more and the middle class getting smaller and a lot of America feeling more and more squeezed. So if people are moving down the socioeconomic ladder and some people are moving up it, I guess what, this hollowing out just has taken away the customer base? Sure. So the most visible way in which TGI Fridays and places like it are challenged is maybe these independent bistros that people are going to when they can afford a more expensive meal. But what's not necessarily as visible is the people who aren't doing as well and who aren't going to TGI Fridays because a $14 meal is is really kind of a lot. Yeah. And when you went to Lancaster, what did you observe? So first of all, I was looking for someplace that reflected small town or what you might call average America. And Lancaster fit a lot of those criteria. I saw that TGI Fridays is located in a large mall. You know, Fridays was not very busy. There were a few couples in there each time that I went, you know, a couple families maybe eating after shopping. But downtown Lancaster was booming. And so having people re-enter the city in that way really gives an advantage to smaller um, independent restaurants in a downtown. There's another wrinkle here, the rise of technology. The idea that if you want, you know, dinner and a movie, you can actually 
do that at home. How do you think that has played into this? Yeah, so I was really curious to see that traffic at casual dining restaurants turned negative over the long term about a decade ago. And what else happened about a decade ago? Well, in 2007, the iPhone was invented, and Netflix also launched its streaming service. Cast your memory back to a time 15 years ago when, if you were looking for options for how to spend your time, going to a TGI Fridays and shooting the breeze was something that really might be of value to you. And now people are spending a whole lot more time just wanting to retreat into their homes, watch the latest Netflix binge, and just kind of text go on Facebook. And so that has certainly challenged restaurants, which have the proposition of, you know, coming in and eating in-house. There are some exceptions to this rule. Olive Garden is the the really notable one. What is it and what are other restaurants like it doing right? Yes. And Olive Garden, one of the things that they've done really well is really invest in their food quality hmm. so that when people do, you know, go out to a meal like this, that they know that they're going to have a guaranteed good experience. The food is going to be good. There's also Texas Roadhouse is doing really well, and they're credited with providing an experience that's more than just about the food. There's country music, the server's line dance, and so that's sort of an experiential meal for people. Applebee's has put some money into trying to sort of change some of their menu, change their experience. Are, are they in this category too? Applebee's is doing probably even worse than TGI Fridays. They're really, really struggling. And, and one of the reasons is because their menu is just less focused than some of the other options. They also play to a lower price point. They're one of the cheapest casual dining restaurants. And so I think their target consumer is among the most squeezed. If you try and look forward Where do these restaurant chains go? What I imagine will happen is that some of these chains will survive, and they'll do that by by really focusing on value, not in terms of cheap menu prices, but by making sure that people have a good experience when they come in, the food quality is good, um, they're feeling like they're leaving the, the restaurant having had a guaranteed experience. Elizabeth Dunn covers the business of food and drinks. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. As the industry declines, chain franchise owners are scrambling. Ruby Tuesday was sold this week to a private equity firm. Buffalo Wild Wings plans to close 60 restaurants. Applebee's will shut 135 locations this year. Our producer, Peter Ballinon-Rosen, headed to the Applebee's closest to our New York studio and joined the franchise owner in a little soul-searching. Can I get another side of onion ring, please? Thank you. My name is Zane Tankle. I'm the CEO of Apple Metro Inc., which owns and operates about 40 restaurants in and around the New York metropolitan area. They're all Applebee's, yes. We're now in the kitchen. An order is taken out in the restaurant, and it comes up on a screen here. If it goes red, it says we're over 14 minutes. We have a metric that we want to have the food back on the table. 14 minutes from when it's ordered. What exacerbated the Applebee's demise was that it made a wrong decision to try and capture the millennial. And they abandoned the traditional Applebee's customer. The marketing proposition was hand-cut wood fire grill. We looked like anything but what we really were. How are you, sir? How's it going? 60 days after we started that program, uh, you just saw the, the, the guest counts dwindling. They were, it was dramatic. It was sinking like a rock. Uh, our sales started tanking early on. 
2% a month, 3% a month. The second year, they started to deteriorate 7%, 8%, 12% a month. And it just continued to deteriorate no matter what we did. I have an email trail of my letters to management about how it was wrong, what was wrong. You can see in my email started very politically correct. And at the end, I was actually cursing in writing, using words that you wouldn't dare ever put in writing because it was just nuts. So what we are doing is we're going back to what sold the best, shifting from a survival mode to the back to basics mode. What do we do that's special? Eye contact. Hi, guys. How are you? Big today? smile. You too? For dinner or just drink? Big greeting when you walk in the door. Big goodbye when you go out the door. All the little things that make it an experience. It's all about the experience. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for coming. That was Applebee's franchise owner, Zane Tankle. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills, with help this week from Paulina Velasco and Sean McHenry. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Daniel Ramirez is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Norin Rao. Sitara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.